I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll catch up on what's happening at the World Trade Organization, where the United States has pulled off a string of victories over China. We're demanding fairness with the World Trade Organization. It's been a disaster for the United States, and we want fairness. We'd lose court cases. We'll also break down the latest economic analysis of the USMCA and what it means for the fate of the president's signature trade deal. The ITC finding that the deal would boost U.S. growth and trade, that it would add about a third of 1% onto GDP over the next five years. All that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, now that we're good and loose, it's WTO week. There's a lot to talk about, about the World Trade Organization. First, let's talk about the market economy trade case win for the EU and the US. China lost for them. What do you think about this, Bill? Well, this is the one that is not out yet in public. It's just out in rumor, but it's very important. Uh, it was this, all- is, this is a sources say. This is a sources say, but sources are really usually reliable on these things. And because uh, it was important, partly because Ambassador Lighthizer said it was on on a couple of occasions, and it had the Chinese won this one, even though it wasn't against us, it was against the Europeans. We were next in line because there were actually two cases. Uh, It would have been uh, would have put us in a very difficult position. The argument, which gets very weedy very quickly, and I'll skip over the weeds, is whether or not the China's joining the WTO, the accession agreement requires everybody else to start treating them as a market economy as of December 11th, 2016, or not. And they think they're not a market economy, and we think they are, right? No, no that's the other way around. it's the other way around. Oh. They, they think they're a market economy. We think they're not. Right. And their accession agreement allowed everybody to just sort of arbitrarily treat them as a non-market economy up until December 11th, 2016. Uh, then there is some very fuzzy wording in their accession agreement that they claim means that after that date, everybody has to treat them as a market economy. Uh, The market economies, however, argue that what the language actually says is that, no, we don't have to treat you that way, but the standard of the evidentiary standard, the standard of proof we have to supply to continue to treat you as non-market goes up. We have to decide case by case whether that sector is a non-market sector or not. And the Chinese say, no, 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 you know, uh, we don't have to do that. That's all gone across the board. They sued us. They sued the EU. They decided to pursue the EU first. I don't know why, but they just decided to move that one along faster. Uh, and that's the one where apparently the Chinese lost. It's an important case for us, but to step back from it for our, our listeners who don't spend as much time on the WTO as, as the trade guys do, one of the things that is characteristic of all trade agreements is they're negotiated by diplomats and they're examined by lawyers after the fact. And so this is the case where in the accession agreement, which was negotiated by our WTO diplomats over uh, as China joined the WTO, there's some language that isn't quite as precise as it might be. And in many cases, ambiguity is the tool of the diplomat to get the agreement across the finish line. Now, 15 years later, 
there's a dispute among lawyers as to what that ambiguous section meant. And trade disputes arise precisely this way. It's the diplomat's main tool is ambiguity. All right. So just so I understand this, guys, why does China think it is a market economy and why do the U.S. and EU think it isn't? Well, it turns out there's a very practical reason. And the answer comes up when someone complains uh, that the other country is dumping. Dumping means selling below cost. Is, I mean, that's a gross definition, selling below the cost of production. And WTO rules and U.S. law, actually everybody's law, says if the other country is dumping, you can assess a tariff to offset the benefit that they're getting by virtue of the dumping. Um, it's generally believed, and, and well, this is an important statute for industries that are suffering from unfair foreign competition. The way most countries' laws work is if you're a non-market economy, it's really hard to tell if you're dumping because the prices are set not by the market but by the government. So it's artificially it's set. It's artificial, and, and you can't calculate it. So there's a set of rules that have been established that say if you're dealing with a non-market economy country, you can count this way, and it sets up kind of an arbitrary way of doing it. That usually produces higher duties than uh, the regular way. And so the Chinese believe that as long as they're considered a non-market economy, they're at a disadvantage because when people bring complaints against them in particular cases, they end up paying higher dumping duties than they would be paying if we had to calculate it as if they were a market economy. So it matters, and, and the stakes tend to be high. And, of course, the Americans and the Europeans think exactly the opposite. We want them to be considered a non-market economy because then we can assess higher tariffs. So China was hoping to improve the way its products were considered in European uh, anti-dumping law. Yes. And uh, they were assuming that the text of their accession would cut them some slack after 15 years. What the panels decided is, no, that's not the case. There's enough amb ambiguity that the European argument that we're, we're judging whether or not you're non-market economy on a set of criteria, and China, you still don't meet that criteria. It's important for the United States because if, if Europe had lost, we would have been next. You know, there was already a panel process that was started with us, and basically what the Chinese decided is, we'll push the European case first, and then we'll wait on the Americans. If China had won, they would have gone on to us. Uh, and this, you know, this goes way back. This started in 2001 or, or so. And so it's, it's not, this is not a Trump thing, okay? Uh, it goes back to when China joined the WTO. But uh, U.S. law on this point is very, very clear. It says you can only be a market economy if you meet certain criteria, which the law enumerates. One of them is that your currency has to be convertible which China's is not. And another one is that wage rates, labor uh, uh, wages, have to be freely negotiated between labor and management, which China doesn't do either because they only have state-controlled unions. Uh, so there are, I think, five criteria plus a catch-all. China clearly does not meet several of the criteria. So if we lose, and I think we won't now because of this, but if we had lost, the only way it could comply was to amend its law and Congress has been very clear they don't intend to do that. It would have pushed Trump a lot closer to pulling out of the WTO. So, so in a way, we dodged a bullet. Indeed. Is this case going to impact additional U.S.-China trade talks? I don't know. It, it, well, not I, the immediate one. The current talks, I think, are on a separate track entirely. The, these cases have been percolating, both the, the, the China's case against Europe, which now we have a, at least a report of a conclusion, and the case against the U.S. They've been percolating for a long time. It's a pre-Trump thing. And then the, the issues raised 
uh, by the 301 investigation in the current dispute between the U.S. and China are on entirely other grounds and I think will be solved in other ways. So I don't see any way this particular one gets negotiated out in the work that's going on now. So, so the other case with China is on grain import quotas, correct? Yes. Okay, tell us about that, Scott. Well, that's an important uh, win for the U.S. There are actually two in a row. That's an actual win. We know that's a win. Well, yes. Last um, Thursday, it was reported out as well. Th- this is this is a real one. This is a panel report, so that may go to the appellate body, which many cases do, if not most cases. But in this case, what the United States claimed was that China was operating a system of what are known as tariff rate quotas in a way that were not transparent or fair or predictable. Now, uh, the tariff rate quota is pretty simple. The, we've, we've moved away from the period where you have an absolute quota that country X will only import 100 metric tons of this particular crop. So that's a quota, okay? The way a tariff rate quota uh, works is you have a an MFN tariff on that commodity, say rice, and then if imports exceed a certain amount, that tariff goes up from, say, let's say it's 5% MFN. The tariff rate quota after the quantity has been reached is 30%. So in other words, what uh, the importer, in this case China, is trying to do is keep it, its market prices relatively high, higher than world prices. And, and the way it does that is it raises the tariff on sort of over quota amounts of rice. Now, tariff rate quota systems are commonly used in agriculture. They're they're a way for price stability. Believe it or not, in the NAFTA, there is a tariff rate quota on peanut butter from Canada. No. Just so you know, it's lots of How could they? There are thousands of them. We do it on sugar. We do it on sugar all the time. And that's one of the reason you do it on peanut butter, frankly. I mean, I feel like getting a t-shirt, don't mess with peanut butter. You do, we do it on it's peanut an butter. It's American thing. That's what yes. I'm saying. But we do it on peanut butter because peanut butter contains sugar, and our sugar prices are higher than Canada. Okay, so there are always okay. reasons for this in the background. The key is, so it's not that you can't have a tariff rate quota. The key is you have to manage it in a way that people understand it. It's transparent. It's predictable, and it's fair. The China challenge, in this case, the United States brought a challenge against China and said, yeah, you've got tariff rate quotas. You don't administer them fairly. The WTO agreed with the United States. That will help our farmers in the future uh, get a better access to China's market. Okay. So, and again, this is on a different track than the other U.S.-China trade talks. Yes. And this yeah. is this is kind of the basic day-to-day work of the WTO dispute settlement body. It's cases like this, which are, are they're not headline cases. They don't, they don't make or break the relationship on a foreign policy or commercial basis, but they settle the way trade is administered. And ultimately, the WTO system, the reason it has created value over the past, it is rules-based. The rules are mutually arrived at, and then they're enforced by mutual consent. And this is one of the examples of where rule, we thought it meant this, you thought it meant that, we settle it by the process we created, and then we abide by the ruling. Okay. Now, we want a couple there, but Russia on Friday had a WTO case on national security, and they won in a dispute about national security in a ruling over a Ukrainian transit dispute that may also affect global automobile tariffs that could be imposed by President Trump. What about that? That's not such good news for the United States. The Russians won, but uh, not for the reason they wanted to win and not for the reason that would have helped us. What the Russians were doing because of their conflict with Ukraine is they were blocking stuff that was transiting Russia and going either to Belarus or to Kazakhstan or the Kyrgyz Republic. And either way, imports and exports. And so Ukraine took them to the WTO. 
Russia claimed it, it, we've blocked these things because it's because of national security. There's a conflict going on, and we're using national security. That then implicated what is known as Article 21 of the GATT, which says that countries can uh, take import limited actions uh, for national security reasons. And then it provides some, some definitions of what that might be. In this particular case, the relevant piece is, is here is war or uh, emergency in international relations. This has never been a very clearly defined term. Some countries, including the United States and Russia, have argued that this is totally up to the country. In other words, Russia said, we get to define what's in our national security, and you, the WTO, don't get to second guess. It's our call. If we say it's national security, that's it. The United States agreed with that uh, and took that same position, and is taking that same position right now on the steel and aluminum tariffs, because we said that was national security when we did that. And if we do the auto tariffs, we'll say the same thing. And so our position in the WTO has been, we get to decide national security for us. That's not something any panel nobody can, can, second, guess. can second guess. Now, you can see immediately that if that stands, is this enormous loophole? Because countries can do whatever they want and argue it's national security, end of story. What happened in the Russia case is the panel disagreed with that assertion uh, and said, no, 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 we do get to decide. We have authority to make a decision as to whether or not you've acted consistent with Article 21. But then the panel went ahead and, and decided, yes, you did. You acted consistently with number Article 21 because there is an emergency. The conflict, I mean, they're shooting at each other. This is a conflict that qualifies within the language of emergency in international relations. So Russia wins, but not for the reason that they argued. Uh, that's good news for Russia, uh, which announced it wasn't appealing. And the thing that surprised me is Ukraine also announced it was not going to appeal, which is bad news for the United States, because that means the decision stands. It's just sort of sitting there. Actually, we're not next, uh, there, because there's a similar dispute between the UAE and Gutter. Mm. over something that one did to the other. Yes. They're next. But we're third. And then th this is a problem. And I can't decide whether this is Marbury versus Madison or it's video replay in college basketball. Marbury versus Madison. Of course, both important. Both important. And, no, and, but one of them is really, <laughs> is really <laughs> irritating. A basketball replay. Well, don't get us started on sky replays and pass interference oh, in the NFL because that is and, really and important Flagrant stuff. one versus flagrant two yeah, in college. Yeah, I don't want to go there. Then we're going to go a whole <laughs> okay. other direction. It's really there, pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, I mean, what's interesting here is they basically ask a judge whether the judge thought that he had jurisdiction. And the judge, of course, said yes, which is exactly what happened with John Marshall did in Marbury Madison. That was a dispute over presidential appointments. And the whole idea of judicial review came from basically uh, Marshall saying, well, I don't want to settle this dispute, but the statute's unconstitutional. So that's what the WTO settlement body did here, is they said, we've assumed this is non-justiciable, but we say it is. We say we can make a decision on what's national security and what's not. How they play this out, it may become as ludicrous as deciding, you know, who touched the ball last and taking seven minutes of, of the game, you know. And, and to figure it out. To figure it out and, and still not having a clear idea, which but is... otherwise couldn't declare that it's national security... Wouldn't this kind of decision undercut our sovereignty? Well, yes. yes. That's why we made the opposite argument. We can declare anything we want. What the WTO is saying is that we get to second guess you and we get to make the decision, just as Justice Marshall did. Uh, I think that's an apt analogy. And at one level, it wasn't good news for Russia. The, the argument didn't pass muster, but they won anyway. 
the reason it's bad news for the United States is that it's going to be very hard for the United States to argue there's an emergency. In the Russia-Ukraine case, you know, there were armed people on both sides. They were shooting each other. There's a clear conflict going on. We can't argue that the White Walkers have entered Winterfell. Not yet. Okay. No. Although, you know, great actually, Game of Thrones reference yes. there. Actually, Winterfell would have a good WTO case under certain circumstances, I suppose. It would. But, well, I don't know. It well, depends on the- <laughs> an armed invasion, I think, counts Let's as, not a, go down as that a national road. security problem. Yeah, so. definitely, definitely <laughs> yeah. a national security problem. And, you know, and dragon glasses in short supply. It, that is true. The situation is made worse by the fact that the panel's decision had some other language in it that didn't really pertain to Russia, but it said in passing that sort of, by the way, economic disagreements between countries don't count as emergencies. Uh, And that's kind of what we've got here on steel and aluminum. It's really an economic emergency. So the handwriting on the wall for the United States is not good when it's our turn to have this considered. Now, that said, it is uh, one of the other things that the United States has been arguing for which I think in the end it will prevail on because these panel reports are not precedents. In other words, just because they decided at this time doesn't mean that all future panels have to make the same decision. So when it's our turn to be a new panel, they might make a different decision. That said, doesn't look good. It's, it's not a good start. And it's one that, well, look, there are a lot of reasons for the United States to be you know, let's let's deal with these 232 tariffs and let's let's wrap them up if we can because they're creating a lot of other problems uh, in the economy. But this is one more pressure on the 232 tariffs on steel and aluminum, and ultimately, if they are ever Im- implemented on autos, where there's where there's another sort of pushback. Well, needless to say, all of this preserves the president's ability to continue to make the case that the WTO has been and is being unfair to the United States. Well, he'll continue, Yes or no? Yes, he'll continue to make it. It's getting harder and harder to do that because most of the time we've been winning. We've been winning a lot. And what he ought to do, I think, is say, they're paying attention and we're winning. Will he do that? No. No. No, I think despite the, the number of times his ambassador, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, has spoken constructively and favorably about the WTO and, and its, its value to the U.S., ultimately, I think the president needs them as a foil. And uh, I don't think he'll catch them doing something right. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> okay. All right. Good well, there we go. It. All right. Speaking of something <laughs> caught right or wrong, um, USMCA, what's going on here? Well, the ITC report, this is the, the economic analysis of the effects of the new agreement, was right on schedule. It was released actually a day early. April 18th was the day it was released. It Immediately was due, the same day as the Mueller report. Same day as right. the Mueller so report. So nobody knew nobody anything about it. Nobody noticed. The report estimates that annual U.S. real gross domestic product would increase by 0.35% or $68.5 billion on an annual basis compared to a NAFTA baseline and would add 176,000 jobs while raising U.S. exports. Good, right? right? Well, it's a slight positive. Keep in mind, put that 176,000 yep. jobs in context. There are about 135 million jobs in the United States today. Mm-hmm. So we're talking 100,000 against 135 or 140 Not that much. million. All right. So so it's a small change. It's a positive change. Uh, and you'd expe- expect that. But the reason it's small is the ITC does a very sophisticated analysis, but it is static. And they compare the conditions today versus the conditions likely with this uh, agreement. But we have free trade today in North America. 
called the NAFTA. So they're analyzing against a very similar base. That's why the, the post is relatively small. One of the more peculiar things that came out, which I, I mean, he's right, but it made me, it made me laugh, was USTR put out a statement by Ambassador Lighthizer saying that this report demonstrates that the USMCA is twice as good as NAFTA. Because if you go back, not twice and, as good. If you go back and look at the <laughs> ITC report on NAFTA mm-hmm. in 1994, it had a job estimate uh, and a growth estimate that was half of the USCM, USMCA estimate. So by definition, USMCA now is twice as good as the old NAFTA. So look, this is all spin, okay? Because NAFTA was the worst trade agreement since the earth cooled. Yeah. Okay. Terrible agreement. USMCA, USMACA is the most luxurious ever. Yeah. Right? It's a beautiful agreement. The fact that there's only 0.3% of GDP difference is somebody else's problem. This is all spin, not this point. But it's still good. I mean, it's, it's, a, posi- it's, it's a positive result. It doesn't, to my mind, fundamentally change the political dynamic. Uh, the people that are for it, uh, for the agreement, are going to say, see, it's a good agreement. Uh, the people that are against the agreement or, or are skeptical of the agreement are going to say, well, this doesn't solve my problems. Yeah, their issues tend not to be economic issues. So that's... All right. So, so what do you guys think are the key takeaways from the report and what's going to happen next? Well, as a threshold issue, uh, I think that it, it is not a barrier to further consideration of the agreement. Had it been a net zero or a net negative, which is possible under the, the way the reports operate, but very unlikely, but it was possible. But, a, but a, bad, a bad result would have given opponents of the USMCA a message, which is, Mr. President, you did a lousy job. Go back and redo it. That message isn't available to them now because they've shown a positive benefit. But it also isn't so overwhelmingly good that it's irresistible that Congress must take it up and must pass it. Looking at specifics, it had some interesting things. Up to a point, it tracked our own study, the one that CSIS came out with a couple of weeks ago on rules of origin in autos, which is the you know, the biggest trade item, biggest manufactured trade item going back and forth. And the administration put out its own economic analysis of USMCA's impact on the auto which sector as well. Which was more optimistic than the ITC's. Right. But what we concluded and what the ITC concluded was that in the short run, the rules changes will channel more investment to the auto sector and it will produce the U.S. auto sector more in parts than in finished vehicles, uh, that it will produce more jobs. And actually, the positive job creation is all in auto parts and components. According to the ITC, there would actually be a small decline in jobs for assembling the car, but well more than offset by the increase in parts and components. That's the same thing that we said. We went a step further and looked five, ten years down the road and thought that it would make uh, the U.S. industry less globally competitive because it would raise car prices, which the ITC also found that it would raise car prices. The other two interesting things they found, which I didn't expect, is they thought that the pharmaceutical provision, which is the one about the the number of years in which you're protecting uh, data on uh, biologic uh, drugs, basically the number of, of, of years you're preventing generics from moving into the market is what that amounts to for biologic drugs. The agreement makes it 10 years, which is actually less than U.S. law. But it's a lot more than Mexican and Canada law, so they've got to step up. The ITC concluded this probably will keep drug prices a little bit higher than would otherwise have occurred, um, which kind of makes sense because you're keeping generics out of the market uh, a little bit longer. Uh, And they also concluded that the narrowing of the uh, investment, the state uh, investment state dispute settlement process, which we've talked about before, 
uh, would actually re- result in slightly more investment in the United States and less investment in Mexico, which is exactly what the administration wanted. Agree. And it's one of those things, it's, it's actually not good for the philosophy of open investment and the notion that a country like the United States has always protected its citizens abroad. Uh, there's less of that now, but it does incentivize production in the United States. So it is one of the elements of the report. So I think ultimately uh, about seven of us trade wonks will read it, and the debate will go on on the on basically on the terms that it's been going on for about three months now. Well, what happens on the Hill? Will any of the wonks on the Hill read it? Oh, yes. It'll be well covered. I'm, I'm sure CRS will summarize it. People will be familiar with the numbers, but ultimately the debate over USMCA will turn on other matters. Yeah, the debate's about uh, enforcement. It's about labor and environment standards. Uh, it's about the drug issue. Drug prices, yeah. Uh, the report is going to confirm what both sides believe, right. uh, and it's not really going to change the debate. What it does do, though, is you know the, the, the process by which this is being considered sets up some speed bumps along the way, and this was an important speed bump. You know, nobody wanted to take the bill up until they saw the report. And now they don't have that excuse anymore. So the report has arrived. Now I think they get down to the serious business of debating what is actually going to be in the implementing bill before the president sends it up. And importantly, what, if anything, has to change in the USMCA before it gets enough support to pass the House. Right. And Democrats and labor unions want some changes to the language before any vote takes place. But that's, yes. that's pretty cosmetic, right? That depends on which side, <laughs> on who you are. The labor union wants, I think the AFL-CIO wants some serious language. Uh, they've made some suggestions as to what that should be. I don't think they're very far down the road yet to agreeing on what to put in. One of the disputes that I think is going to be an important one is, can you only fix this by changing the text of the agreement, or can you fix it by changing U.S. law? which is a separate thing. Ambassador Lighthizer has said many times he doesn't want to go back and reopen the agreement, even though we often do that. It would not be the first time that uh, administrations were made to do that, but it's a pain. And, and it's it seems pain. easier than changing the law. It's, oh, no, no, because you, no. Cha- you change the law, you just put something in the implementing bill, and Congress will either pass it or defeat it. it break open be. the agreement, and Canada and Mexico have got things they want to fix, too. Uh, things come uh, yeah. unraveled. Yes, you break open the agreement, and you know there's no free lunch in trade negotiations. And if you go back to uh, the Mexicans, even if you go back to the Mexicans on drug prices and say, oh, we want less than 10 years, the Mexicans are going to point out first, well, it was you that asked for 10 years, not us. Uh, and we're happy to agree to less than 10 years, but you have to pay for that. You don't get anything for You it. don't get anything for free. This is a frustrating business trade, guys. Well, that's, hey. Or it can be. That's, that's why it takes uh, people like Bob Lighthizer to do it. He's a, he's a tough guy. He's a smart guy. He's been at this for 35 years. Patient. Or more. He's patient. And it's and, why nothing happens overnight. Right. The wheels grind very slowly on these things. We will continue watching the wheels turn round and round right here on The Trade Guys. Grind us all into dust, yes. To our listeners, if you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thank you. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, 
a CSIS podcast.